employee or a boss and that feeling of dread, that concern, or when you have a tough conversation uh, with your spouse, or even when you're late for work and you just can't seem to find your keys and then find that your kids have placed them somewhere out of the blue, like the refrigerator or even in some cases the trash can, or that feeling when your son hits you in the face with his race car track as happened to me last night. But in a much more serious way, think about the feeling in the midst of an intense argument with someone you love, where you don't know how you're going to be able to move forward from that, or the unexpected or expected loss of a loved one. In all these situations, when we face a crisis, our body and our nervous system hypercharges itself to respond in one of these three different ways. And you see it all the time in classrooms and uh, with students. Now, fight, flight, and freeze are characterized by kind of three main characteristics. Um, First of all, what I want to say is these are not bad things. It's just your human, your innate, your primal response to experiencing a crisis situation. All right? So fight can look like this. Withdrawing. Sorry, flight can look like this. Withdrawing. Literally fleeing the situation. Avoiding and moving away. And here's what flight is meant for. If you're in a situation where you're threatened, you need to get away from that situation. And so your body tries to figure out a way to remove yourself from danger. Um, And then there's fight. Fight is characterized by acting out, behaving aggressively, arguing, yelling. And with fight, you're moving towards the crisis. You're gearing up to defend yourself or your children or some threat. And then finally, freeze, which I didn't even know existed until a few weeks ago. I've always kind of known it was fight or flight. But freeze simply means feeling unable to move or act. You're stuck in the situation. Or you're stopping to assess the situation. And like I said, these are human things. This is not good or bad. It just is. When you feel feel threatened, or when you feel afraid, or you've been caught, or you're in a crisis, you go to one of these three places, or two, or all of the above. Um, And so in the passage today, we have to kind of unpack our situation to know that Jesus shows us a really interesting perspective about what it means to suffer, what it means to go through a difficult trial. So join me in verse 36. And Jesus went with him to a place called Gethsemane. Um, On the Mount of Olives, he goes to a place called Gethsemane, which literally means press. It's an olive press. That's literally what Gethsemane means translated in Hebrew. A very fitting description. Jesus is going to be literally pressed and crushed. And he goes to a place where that would happen to olives. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, his three kind of main disciples, he began to be sorrowful. And troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So the first response we see to crisis. And Jesus is experiencing a crisis. There's no mistake about that in this moment. If you've been tracking with us the Gospel of Matthew, you know that Jesus' ministry has concluded, his physical ministry on the earth. And now he's moving towards the climactic event of his uh, ministry, which is going to the cross. And he's aware of that. He knows what's going to happen. And he's aware of the ramifications that are going to go with that. 
He's sorrowful, he's broken, and he falls on his face, and his first response in this moment is honest, intense, intimate, and quite frankly, beyond a description, time of prayer. And Jesus doesn't go to one of our three human responses. He doesn't embark on a fight, flight, or freeze mentality. Instead, he comes to this place of honest communication with God. But I want us to notice the quote of what he says in verse 39. He says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, the cup is an idiom. It's a first century idiom. It's a characteristic of saying God's wrath, punishment. When that happens, he recognizes that there is a far off picture, not even that far in the distance, wherein he's going to be crushed, as the prophet Isaiah says, for the iniquity of the people. So it's not just the physical payment. It's also the wrath of God. He says, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And how many of us would look at that picture and feel a little bit strange about that characteristic of Jesus. That is a profoundly human response to say, God, if there's any other way, let this pass. And for a lot of us, we don't think about the fact that Jesus prays in this moment to be released. God, if there's any other way, let this cup God's wrath, let it pass from me. But then he comes back to this moment where he says, not as I will, but as you will. Now, I know we're talking about suffering here, and I want to point out that this is just where we're at in Matthew. It has nothing to do with our present circumstances here this morning, right? But as with the fact that in the Gospel of Matthew, we come to this point on this Sunday to talk about suffering. And Jesus' first response is not to go to fight, flight, or freeze. Instead, he goes to a place of prayer. Now, he's taken with him a couple disciples, and he goes on to say this. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So here we see the response of the disciples. The first response of the disciples is to fall into one of these human characteristics. Now, they've been following with Jesus. They've been walking with him. They don't really have a full grasp of what is going to happen in the future with Jesus. They have a picture and an idea, but even some points, Peter is like rebuking Jesus for his decisions to go to the cross. And he comes to them, and he finds them sleeping. This is the characteristic of freeze. Instead of embracing the moment, instead of doing what Jesus has done and what he asked them to do, they fall asleep and they remove themselves from the situation. And notice Jesus' command to them is to watch. He says, can you pray that you may not enter into temptation? Your spirit wants to do this. Your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. You must be watchful and pray. For so many of us, when we face a crisis, our default factor is to freeze. I'll medicate. I'll check out. I'll find a way to get out of the situation. If I can't get out of it, I'll just simply remain paralyzed in where I'm at. And then we go on. Again, for the second time, verse 42, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. You can see in the way that this is written that he gets a little bit less nuanced in the way that he's communicating with God. He says, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, 
your will be done. He prays a second time to be removed from the situation for an out, but at the same time, prays to be under that will if that's the goal. And the response, he comes back again, he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying these same words again. Do we catch that? Jesus prays three times in the garden, in anguish. Without a doubt, one of the most stressful situations, knowing your impending doom, but not just your physical doom, also the fact that you're going to be inflicted with the sins of the people and God's wrath towards sin on the cross. He prays three times to be removed from that. And he came to his disciples and he said to them, Sleep, take your rest later on. See that the hour is at hand. The man, son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayer is at hand. And now we're going to see a third response, the response of Judas. Verse 47. And while he was still speaking, Judas came to Judas, one of the twelve. Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. So imagine the scene, Jesus in the garden, he's praying, he's praying for God's will to be released. All of a sudden, Judas shows up with people that very much have ill intent. Now the betrayer to give them a sign, saying, the one who I kiss, this is the man, sees him. And he came to Jesus once and said, greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. The third response we see is that of Judas. And Judas is in flight. He is in self-preservation mode. His human response, as he's turned Jesus over to escape his own potential physical pain, he's in flight. He doesn't come running down the hill and saying, there's the Messiah, arrest him and kill him. That's him. Instead, he gives a simple, passive gesture of reverence to signify who the Messiah is. In verse, uh, verse 50, they came up and they laid hands and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Here's where we see the obvious fourth response is fight. One of the disciples, probably Peter, it's very on brand for Peter to do something like this, takes out his knife and lunges at one of the high priests. Now remember, it's not one person and Judas. It's a whole group of people coming to Jesus. And Peter thinks that if he can just strike this one high priest or this one uh, guard of the high priest, that he can deliver Jesus. So he runs, and he runs at him with a knife and tries to kill him and misses and cuts his ear off. Here we see the response of fight, violence, in the attempt uh, to right a wrong. Now what I love is that Jesus gives three different responses. In the first response, he tells the disciples, he says, listen, watch, pray, be alert, be aware. To Judas, he says, do what you came to do. And now he says to Peter, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that I must be so? Think about that for a second. Jesus says to Peter, listen, he doesn't necessarily rebuke him 
But he comes to me and he says, do you think, if I wanted to get out of this, I could bring 12,000 angels down if I wanted to. You with your knife, it's not going to accomplish anything. In fact, he says the violence, the only thing you're going to get in return for violence is more violence. So fight does not deliver. Now, how does this have, what does that do with us? Redmond, Oregon, 2021. What does this mean for us? Well, right now, psychologists, educators, and therapists, and counselors would say that we are living through a collective trauma. Whether that is a constant association with death and tragedy in the midst of a global pandemic, much of which we're experiencing the ramifications of that this morning. Whether that's the last year and the ongoing reconciliation and conflict around racial justice and our own personal beliefs. Or it's intensified, hypercharged political climate we're all in. All of this is in addition, by the way, to the everyday human crisis we already experienced every day before this. Now heap onto that the intense social upheaval of our current climate and COVID. It would be easy for us as human beings and totally understandable to slide into one of these responses where we simply live in this human response to the crisis happening around us. It's our natural human response in our crisis to a threat. However, here's the deal. If we operate in one of these responses for a prolonged period of time, This is what they find a lot within situations around trauma and trauma. I called my friend Michael last night to kind of like, not Michael, the pastor, but Michael, a different Michael. And I said, hey, he's a counselor, and I said, talk to me about trauma and how it affects the brain. Because as an educator, we talk a lot about trauma and how it affects um, students. And he said, well, trauma is anything that overwhelms your ability to cope. It overwhelms your central nervous system at the point that you shut down. And we can experience acute trauma or chronic trauma. Acute trauma means it happens once. Arguably, what Jesus is experiencing here in the garden is an acute trauma. It's a small period of time. Prolonged trauma would be repeated over years and years and years. Think of a tragic situation wherein a spouse or a child is in an abusive household. That chronic exposure to trauma over and over and over again overworks the central nervous system. Wherein that individual stays in a period of fight, flight, or freeze for their whole life, never being able to move on from that. That person grows up in that state, and because they were younger, when their brain, their synapses are being formed, they now can no longer function in an an average environment because their brain is so overworked by the situation. And so for us, if we're living through a collective trauma, if we're constantly exposed because of social media and technology to this over-hypercharged environment, it means that for some of us, we are living in one of these responses constantly throughout our life. And the last year, because COVID has been the forefront of everything that's happened, and because racial justice has been the of everything that's happened, we've seen the ramifications of people's responses to these ideas, both good and bad, and it's charged us up. To where our central nervous system is overworked by a collective crisis and a collective trauma. So right now you may find yourself like the disciples. You're sleeping through the crisis. You're unable to engage simply because you do not know what to do. And you may be medicating in your own way. A cultural narcotic of choice, as one of uh, a colleague of mine says, 
Or as one pastor put it, that may be alcohol, it may be a literal narcotic, it may be five hours of Netflix or endless social media scrolling just to keep yourself out of what's happening in the world. Although if you know anything about it, you really can't go that far on social media before you find yourself charged up again. You could be on Facebook Marketplace trying to find a pair of boots and before you know it, you hate somebody. It's really unfortunate that's the way our culture has built. And they're monetizing that too. They make money off of our, our focus upon that. Or you may find yourself, after the loss of a loved one, simply being unable to move forward. And it was the same way I felt as the, my mom passed away a couple years ago. And this is the way I felt leading up to that. How am I going to move on? How am I going to get back to normal? What's life going to be like now? And if you're wise, you understand that there really is no normal. We've been forever changed by our circumstances. Trauma and crisis, it changes us. Two, you may find yourself like the disciples, you may be in flight. You may be disengaged, uninterested, unwilling to accept the reality of our current humanity that's broken and hurting. You may find yourself in flight if you're unwilling to engage in our present cultural moment because it's simply too much of a viewpoint and too much of a paradigm shift for you. Or because the truth is just too much to bear. So you cave to culture to numb you, to carry out, carry you out of the pain. You look, instead of freezing and, and stopping, you instead move towards culture. You leave where there's health and you go to a place where you can just be away. You may choose to actively leave community, your community, to carry you out of the pain. You may choose to leave community because no one understands you. Or gives you what you really want in a church, which is perfect people who all see the world your way. And then finally, three, you may find yourself like Peter, and you may be in fight. You're angry at the political movement on the right or the left. You're angry at the ideas that are propagated in various fringe movements in such a way that you demonize and dehumanize human beings on the opposite side of your own perspective. You believe that you have to fight to win back our nation for Christ. You may believe that it's the responsibility of the church to align itself with certain political causes or party in order to fundamentally restore American values. And notice I said American values, not Christ's values. Or in a much more extreme way, you're prepared to violently oppose anyone who opposes you or your perspective, all the while claiming that Jesus is your Lord. One commentator said this, make no mistake, violence always breeds more violence and rarely proves anything. May you find yourself blaming God for your loss of a loved one or a job after you were, quote unquote, a good person. Fortunately for us, we have a final response that's exemplified by Jesus by a dense and profound conversation with God. A fourth option Jesus stays grounded. Any point in this passage, an expression of Jesus' humanity, I would argue that instead we should see the passage as an expression of Jesus' whole divinity. Like we always see this, we call, oh, this is a great picture of Jesus' combination of his humanity and his divinity, but it's actually him 100% operating in his divinity because he doesn't go to a human response. He doesn't fall into a trap that a natural primal instinct, instead, he simply prays three times honestly with God to let the cup pass but also expresses his willingness to stay under the will of God. Jesus shatters our transactional expectation that we often place on God in prayer. 
One commentator says this, prayer seeks to surrender to God's will. The prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane shows that we can be close to God, live a holy life, and pray with faith and earnestness and expectancy, and yet not get what we asked for. We have to understand that right now, if we are living through a collective crisis, which people collectively agree on, we will find ourselves going to one of these three places. Fight, flight, or freeze. And if we stay there, we can do irrevocable damage to ourselves and to people around us. Now, God doesn't condemn us. Like I said, these are natural human responses. We've all experienced fear. We've all experienced threat. And yet now, that threat is coming into our phones or our tablets or our television sets, and it's bringing the fear to us, and we're responding to that. Our culture is making a living off of us, living in fight, flight, or freeze constantly. How do we battle that? How do we oppose that movement? We have to come back to being grounded. Jesus is honest with God. He doesn't say, oh, well, you know, God, just do what you got to do. He's honest. He's actually in this passage, he's sweating drops of blood. He's in such intense anguish. He's really wrecked by what's going to happen. And he's honest, God, if there's any other way, take this away. But if this is your will, let me stay under it. My prayer for us and our consideration for us moving forward is simply to understand that God has called us to a higher purpose. Yes, we can go to those default places, but we can't live there. If you find yourself living in any one of these perspectives, know that if you continue to live there, you may do serious harm to yourself. While God is saying, I want to invite you into a new reality where you can be honest with me. You can come before me and say, God, I look at our world, I look at our culture, I look at what's going on, and yes, I'm in anguish over it, but I also recognize that you are on the throne. Think about that perspective. God, I see all this stuff happening in the world and so opposed to what I think should be going on or what I think should be right. And God says, listen, I know. I'm not, I'm not oblivious to what's happening. But just like Peter, Jesus says, I could call down angels right now and do the, end this whole thing. I could do that. But if you keep responding in violence, keep responding with anger, demonizing people in whatever perspective you're on, nothing's going to change. But the church's role and the people of God, their role is to be active in their community. And C.S. Lewis says this about suffering. He says, suffering is a reminder to us that we're human. It's a reminder to us that we live in a broken world. And so Jesus exemplifies that here. He says, listen, I pray that God would take this cup. But I will not give in to that temptation to flee, to fight, or to freeze. May God allow you to find footing in your life this week. May you ponder where, which state you're living in. Are you coming back to being with Jesus? Just remember that, Jesus is not, that God is not a human who has a limited capacity. Sometimes it's hard for us to be honest with God because we're so afraid of the fact that we're going to overwhelm God with our stuff. And God can't be overwhelmed. He does, he's, not, he's unlimited. 
So when we face a crisis or a situation, it's okay for us to be frustrated. It's okay for us to be angry. It's okay for us to experience hurt. It's okay for us to go through pain and be honest with God. Because God's not like, oh, whoa, 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 stop, 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 stop. That's too, whoa, too much. Instead, he says, I welcome that because I have the capacity and I'm the one that has the power to give you purpose in the midst of this. That's our prayer for us this week. I hope that finds you in somewhere where you can find traction in your life. And I hope that we can move forward in being honest with God through our crisis right now and then know what God has us as our role to do in it as well. Let's pray and then Scott and Bethany will come back up and lead us in worship.